Design with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today is all about human-centered approaches to robot design, or put more simply, designing robots around human need and intended purpose. Human-centered approaches to robot design can be crudely broken down into three phases. An analysis phase to understand the problem and obtain inspiration for possible solutions, a synthesis phase to create, build and implement the solution, and an evaluation phase to understand if the solution works as intended. Bill Jumutlu, Associate Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, works on human-centered methods and principles of robot design. He hopes to create technologies that help people in the home, at work or in other settings. In his work, he combines design principles with techniques from computer science and the cognitive and social sciences. Our interviewer Audro spoke to Professor Mutlu about his background and motivation, about the principles of design thinking, and about some of his current projects. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hello, pleased to be here. Would you introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Bill Gemutlu. I'm an associate professor of computer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I direct the human-computer interaction lab there, and also co-direct the collaborative robotics lab. Mm-hmm. And would you tell me about what motivates your work? Um, well, it's, it's a long story, or maybe I can say as follows. Um, I think what, motivate, what motivates my work in particular has to do with sort of my background. Um, I was originally trained as a designer, a product designer, um, and that gave me a particular perspective on systems and artifacts that we interact with, how to design mm-hmm. them, how to put them together, how to think about users, and how these systems are put out into the real world. Um, so one of the things that motivates me is to really think about these artifacts and systems as things that people use. So thinking about that interaction, thinking about um, improving that interaction, making it better to design, uh, and thinking about how these systems and interactions will take place in a particular setting, right? If if this is a robot that's meant to interact with people uh, in their homes, so we have to think about the home. And Mm -hmm. home has this particular ecology and how to design for that. Um, and another aspect of this is being trained as a designer gives you a perspective on how to do things. So design is a very process-driven field. Um, so in my work, um, I look at a lot about. Uh, I look at. I look at a lot at how we should be thinking about robots, how we should be designing them, how we should be uh, improving their designs and integrating them into real-world environments. So this question of how. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the processes that, that answer that uh, are kind of of particular concern to me. Mm-hmm. And can you give me an example of a process in design? Sure. Um, well, you know, so um, about a decade ago, uh, Hugh Doberly, who's a, a designer in the Bay Area, he uh, did a study. And he asked many, many design teams and groups and companies the question of uh, how do you design? Um, and out of hundreds of answers, 
the prevalent model in which people design was this three-stage process that went in circles. Um, the first one is analysis, where you analyze a problem, understand something. Right? There's always a step of understanding either your problem or sometimes your inspiration for your solution. Mm -hmm. Okay. The second step is synthesis. Now you have to create something, generate a, a, a solution, a new system, a new experience. And then the third one is evaluation. Mm. You see if the synthesis produced uh, a response to, to the problem you identified in analysis. So, for example, let's say that I want to design gestures for a human-like robot. Mm -hmm. My analysis might be, well, if it's a human-like robot, maybe I should look at human gestures. So let me go study human gestures. You can analyze human gestures, identify a set of uh, parameters or an entire model from that analysis. Mm -hmm. And then you can synthesize a solution, meaning that you can create gestures for a robot and implement them on a robot. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last step, evaluation, is that you would see if these gestures work in the way that you intended them to work. Mm -hmm. um, so if you follow this process, you, you go through the entire design process. And of course, it's not that simple. You have to do these things in cycles. Often you go back and forth between these steps, right? You analyze, you mm -hmm. synthesize, you see with your own eyes what you synthesize is actually not a good representation of the analysis. Sometimes you have to go back to the starting point, you analyze more, mm -hmm. or sometimes you synthesize and you build a system and you uh, evaluate it and see all the problems with it. You go back to the synthesis stage and then improve your design. So that's mm -hmm. often called iterative design or iterative development. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of iteration within this process too. Um, I would say that a lot of design boils down to these three major phases. Hmm. And why is it nice to have these kind of explicitly labeled? I think a lot of times when we try to solve problems, we end up going through this kind of process, but we don't think of it in terms of these different bins of problem solving. Right. Um, I think that that's where science comes in, right? So uh, as a designer, I might build very good inst instincts about how to so solve certain types of problems. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as a scientist, you also have to think about how do, you, how do you use this process systematically in your own work? How do you train your students and trainees to understand this process and also follow it? Mm -hmm. How do you um, sometimes design, sometimes research questions are very complex. Uh, you may have to apply this process in a much more complex way, maybe hierarchically. So you have to make things more explicit. Mm. Um, in all these kinds of challenges, having an explicit process improves your rigor, uh, improves your communication, improves your ability to train other people. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is one of the places where we have to reconcile being a designer and being a scientist. Mm -hmm. Right, both are both have their own demands and both have their own strengths. Mm -hmm. um, and I think formalizing the process within which you work allows you to utilize the strengths of both. Nice. Now, would you tell me a bit about your work and kind of the big areas that you focus sure. on? Sure. So I would say that I work in three kinds of conceptual areas. Okay, all of them are in the space of building robotic technologies for people. Okay, by for people, I mean by, for human interaction. Um, the three are first, 
understanding what makes up the design space for these technologies, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm a designer, if I have to sit down to design a robot, what do I start with? What do I think about? What are the elements I can play with, right? If you want to build something out of Lego blocks, you have to have the blocks. So how do we find out what the building blocks are? And for robotics, for robotic technologies, these blocks are very underspecified. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of the work I do uh, looks at finding out what are the things that I can give to a designer to design a particular family of robotic systems or robots for a particular problem space. Uh, to give you an example, uh, imagine that I have a human-like robot and the robot has arms and I'd like to now design gestures uh, to use with those arms so the robot can uh, use nonverbal behaviors to communicate with its users. Uh, so I can look at a number of different resources. Let's say that I want to look at human gestures because the human-like robot has human-like arms. So if the behavior matches that human-likeness, it is more likely to be effective. So I might go and look at human gestures. I might uh, ask people to communicate and observe their gestures. Or I might look at the psychology literature to find any kind of existing model for gestures. Mm -hmm. And there we will see descriptions or data that indicate what design elements to use. You look at a video of someone describing um, an object or giving directions, you see all these gestures that they would use. They might point at places, they might uh, use metaphoric gestures to uh, use con concepts or use iconic gestures to describe concrete objects. Mm -hmm. uh, or they might be using beat gestures to accompany their speech and emphasize aspects of their speech. So you, you, you identify those elements and you extract them and build models of them. Sometimes those models are characterizations of what each gesture looks like. It mm -hmm. might be a trajectory that people follow. It might be what elements of the body are involved in this gesture. What are the timings of this? Timing mm -hmm. within the gesture, but also timing um, alongside other behaviors. Do I do the gesture after I speak or before or during? What yeah. is the alignment like? So these are the ways in which we can identify the elements of that space. And then one thing that's interesting to me, it seems like it's separating things and building a vocabulary. Correct. How do you, um, how do you recombine them into something? It's like if you dissect a frog and you see all of its parts, but then how do you understand how they all relate together sure, to make a jumping frog? That's a frog? very good question. Um, I would say that that context comes into place then, right? So you have all these design elements. The way that the context in which they come together is communication. Mm -hmm. Now, that was just identification of the elements. Now let's okay. say that I want to build this, these behaviors for a robot. Now I actually have to define the context within which these behaviors are going to be used, and the context is going to dictate how they come together. Mm -hmm. right? If I say, well, I'd like the robot to give directions, now that already tells me the context for that, right? It means that I have a communicator or a set of communicators. Mm -hmm. It means that the robot is going to speak, give, make concrete references to places to go to, um, and the robot has to align its gestures to all those behaviors and refer to uh, the physical environment uh -huh. um, to the communicator. So now I think about all these constraints. That tells me exactly how to utilize these small design elements that I identify. Very interesting. Right? Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that was one, and we bled into a later one. But so then the first part is the building blocks, figuring right. out that. 
Um, can you give an example of a robotics study that you were a part of? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, the example that I'm giving now oh, yeah. is already a robotics study. What you're saying is that, can you ex explain the robotic part of it, right? Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Um, sure. So, imagine that I built this robot that mm -hmm. uses gestures and to communicate with people. So, in one study, we did that we identified pointing gestures from the human gesture literature. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we wanted to really see is, well, okay, so from literature on human communication, we identified a set of gestures that people use to point at things. Mm -hmm. um, what we really wanted to see is that because we identified many different kinds of pointing gestures, we wanted to see what are the situ situations under which the robot might use one gesture over another. Because if you say that, hey, there are 10 different kinds of pointing gestures, well, which one do I use, right? Uh, turns out that under different circumstances, different gestures are more effective. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if you're pointing to an object, directly pointing with your index finger is perfectly fine. But if you're talking about a, a large collection of objects and a cluster of it within that, pointing is not sufficient. You need to actually kind of... Um, cover the area that you're referring to with your hand, right? Uh, you can do a sweeping gesture and say this side, I'm talking about this side, or you might say this group of objects encircling the objects in air with your hand, right? Mm -hmm. um, all of these are actually pointing gestures, but they are, they are a, a better fit to the particular communication problem in hand. So what we did is that we implemented all these into the robot and we created an experimental setup where we varied the environment, where the objects were more complex, uh, grouped in different ways. We uh, introduced noise, for example. What happens when people, your communicator couldn't hear you? Would you rely more on the gesture than speech? Um, and then tested different aspects uh, and then tested which gesture worked under, under what circumstances better. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the results. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, and then so the second big area, conceptual area of your work. So um, the second space that I work in is that let's say that we have all these design variables and we can describe them or maybe over time we're, we're building systems that use design variables and they become a lot more, um, uh, a lot more common or people... We have more agreement of what the, what the design variables are for a particular type of robot. Now, designers have to actually use them to create robotic systems. And mm -hmm. one of the unique things about robotics is that these systems that we're talking about are very complex. Designing them uh, is not very straightforward, right? Um, systems are not static. They're constantly dealing with dynamic situations, talking to people, uh, multiple people, people's moods are changing, environment is changing, objects are changing. How do you actually design for a space like that, even if you know the design elements? Um, there, what, what I really like to do is to create design processes and tools to help designers and facilitate the design of robotic technologies. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the work that I do is in the space of designing behaviors, right? Uh, and that ends up being mostly software. Of course, we see the manifestations of that software in the robot when it behaves, and that's physical, um, but usually defining and designing behaviors is a process of uh, creating abstract models, turning those models into essentially code programs, mm -hmm. and then simulating them, seeing them on a robot, and going through this iteration of 
not being satisfied with what you see and improving your program and going back and sometimes revisiting your model and then again, you know, creating your program uh, and refining your program and then seeing it again on the, on the robot. Mm -hmm. So um, what we try to do is to build tools that will help designers with this process. As an example, we recently built a visual authoring environment, right? So we give designers visual programming elements, what we call micro-interactions. Let's say that I want to build a robot that's going to have a conversation with someone or that's going to walk up to someone, ask a question. We have micro-interactions for greeting someone. We have micro-interactions for asking a question or answering a question or leave-taking. Um, the designers can actually drag and drop these micro-interactions in a canvas and then build connections with them, define conditions under which the robot will transition between these different micro-interactions, parameterize them. We can say, for example, when you greet, wave your hand. When you greet, look at the person in the eye. Um, and once, we, once the designer builds an interaction with this, in the background, we use what's called formal verification to analyze the program that's generated out of this visual design and give the designer feedback. We can give the designer feedback about many things. For example, uh, task expectations. We, let's say that the designer's task is to create a, a package delivery robot and the robot is supposed to enter a building, identify a person and deliver a package. Let's say um, that the designer created the, the appropriate program um, and then we analyze and we identify, um, let's say the designer created a, a, an appropriate program. Um, we identify, for example, what happens if the robot enters the building and there's no one there, right? Did you consider that scenario? So we identify that that's a possible dead end and tell the designer, hey, there's a, there's a um, well, uncovered case. Uncovered case, but how do you? How, so how do you do when you define like meta behaviors go into the building? Do you define kind of their like you go find a person? Question. You define their inverse in a sense? And no. So let me let me describe it this way. Um, so what you do is that you have you've defined a set of behaviors. What we do is that we create a program out of that. That creates a transition system of how the robot will move between its internal states. Right. That's it. That's the program that it will run. In addition to that, uh, what we provide to formal verification is a set of properties, which is expectations that the robot mm. must meet, right? I see. For example, the, robust must, must, the robot must complete its delivery. If that's an expectation, then we can look at that transition system and identify interaction traces yep. uh, that will not result in a successful delivery, right? And warn the designer about that. So that's okay. number one, right? Task expectations. Number two is social norms. Uh, we can warn the designer about potential violations of social norms. For example, if we have a property that says that when you talk to your user, always establish eye contact, and the designer did not specify that, we'll find that and we'll tell the designer, hey, your robot is violating social norms here. Or you might see con conflicting behaviors. Let's say that you tell the uh, you tell the robot or the or the designer said that the robot should look at its user, but at the same time um, there's another that user that appears and the robot should also acknowledge that user. Uh, the designer might not have thought of that, so mm -hmm. we would identify that violation and tell the designer that oh maybe you may want to acknowledge 
uh, the other user that approach mm. and then go back to the other one. Um, there might also be multiple behaviors used at the same time, and they might be using the same resource. Are they layered in a sense? I mean, if you look, you can at think like about it that way. So let's say that the robot uh, has arms and it's carrying the package in its arms, and then the designer says uh, the robot should gesture uh, at the user, saying, "Are you the user?" You might identify that the robot's arms are already busy carrying the package, so the gesture would uh, be a violation of the use of the resource of the arms. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes. Very interesting. Okay. So, um, and I think the third the third space in which I work is, as a designer, you always think about how the systems that you're building, how the artifacts that you're building will fit into the environment that they're going to be introduced or that they're going to be used in. If you're designing it, washing machine, you think about a laundry room or, or a bathroom. If you're designing a, a refrigerator, the kitchen is your context, and how are people going to use that? That's sort of constantly what you think about. Um, the same thing with robots. Uh, a lot of the times we design these systems with some abstract notion of the context in which they're going to go. Uh, but really thinking about and facing that context will change the way that you're looking at your design problem. So I'm really interested in bringing the systems that we build in the lab into these real-world environments and really seeing that real-world interaction, which I think is very different from what we envision. And it can also be different from what we see without the robot. Because sometimes we look at these environments, understand current use of uh, alternative systems or understand current practices, design robots to facilitate those practices, but when we introduce those robots, those practices necessarily change. So how do we understand that change? How do we understand the adaptation that people have um, to the introduction of this, this system? I, I don't think I constructed that well. I think I should approach it from the design design angle. So sure. let me give you that other example. So, okay. So, so the third uh, space in which I, I like to work in is um, we build our designs with some abstract notion of the problem space and really target some idealized interaction scenario. But when we put these systems out into different contexts, that idealized scenario might actually play out really differently. Imagine that I built a receptionist robot. I put it in a dentist's office versus an airport uh, information kiosk. The same design might actually play out very differently. The robot might never use some of the behaviors that you identified or, or designed into it in one of the contexts, or it might need other ones in another context. Um, so how do we facilitate this idea of adapting into real-world environments uh, and improving our designs to better function in these environments? Uh, so what we're building is we're building tools um, that will allow robots to adapt to these situations by getting feedback from users who are uh, in these environments. Um, right? We Let's say that we built a particular behavior into a robot and we deploy it into a, an environment. There, as the robot goes through an interaction, it could actually ask for feedback from the user about how the interaction went and using that feedback, adapt uh, its program to the kinds of interactions that are happening in that space, right? It might actually, um, it might actually remove some of the space that is never going to go in, or uh, certain interaction traces that people um, had a negative experience with, or it might identify a need for uh, 
kinds of interactions that the robot wasn't able to deal with. And then the designer can understand and kind of build those for that particular context, hmm. right? Um, this is sort of one type of work you can do in terms of integrating robots into real-world environments. And, and another one is um, to see these systems out into the real world and better understand the kinds of problems and practices are um, arising around these systems. And that really requires sort of deployment studies. So we've been doing uh, more and more deployment studies. I'd like to see robots in homes, in professional environments, in public environments for more than days, right? Mm -hmm. Weeks time, months time, and what happens in, in, the, in those periods. Because um, as people's practices really adapt to the presence of the robot, you might see their expectations change. You might see the design requirements change. And there's actually a lot to learn, a lot of principles to learn from those changes that we can use earlier in the design process so that the new systems that we put out there can be designed to accommodate those kinds of principles. Hmm. So, um, yeah. I have some examples, but it's kind of an abstract topic to think about, so I don't, I don't know if I should give. If you have questions, I'm happy to explain them. In the case that the robot should learn a new interaction because it's not quite appropriate because of the expectation of the designer or the program, the implementer at the beginning, right. how would you identify that this new interaction should be created? Um, well, imagine that you have deployed a robot into the real world and there are certain things that the robot should do as a part of its function, mm -hmm. right? It must um, direct people to different rooms in a building. Mm -hmm. And then through feedback that you're receiving from your users, um, you're finding a lot of sort of negative interaction there. Or maybe the robot adapted its behavior such that it's no longer functioning well in that space, right? It cut out uh, part of the program that was doing that directing, right? So you see this discrepancy between what the robot is able to do now mm -hmm. and um, what you would like the robot to do. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So imagine that you have, imagine imagine that you, your program has 10 functions. Yeah. And then over time, by getting feedback from people, the robot decided that I'm not I'm not really good at giving directions, so I'm going to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. But then your robot is really not doing part of this function, right? Mm -hmm. So that part probably needs to be redesigned. Now, one can imagine in the future, can the robot actually ask for help, do some active learning um, to really improve things on the fly? That's also a possibility. Right now, we're looking at identifying problems and uh, kind of bringing it back to the design process and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, exposing it to designers so they can design these things better. So right now it's more kind of an adapt, a process of adapting, uh, adapting existing designs into a, a context. Mm -hmm. So it's not a generative process such that you would learn from the context how you should behave, which is an entirely different approach and I think entirely uh, has this entirely different set of complications. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, Backing up a little bit, if how would researchers now apply more design principles in the work that they do? What advice do you have for them? Okay, here's what I would say. Um, it's really more like a design mindset, okay? And the mindset comes from kind of the history of design, 
right? Design emerged from crafts, okay? Um, people were doing design for millennia, right? So imagine that you are a pottery designer or a potter. You're building pottery out of mud, clay, right? You take this material, it's this clay in your hands, mushy clay, and you form it into a particular design, right? You're using this raw material, you decided that this clay from this particular region uh, is the best clay you need to use for your particular goal. You take that clay, you use that raw material, then you have a process in mind. You might be shaping things with a tool, you might be shaping with your hand, and then, sh and then you create the entire shape, um, maybe in pieces, maybe as a whole, and then you maybe putting that clay after it's shaped into an oven and apply different uh, surface treatments of it, on it. And these are all kind of tools and processes that you need to apply to bring that raw material into this design, right? So design elements, process, tools, these are all things that, that designers constantly think about and apply. And then finally, I think, this is even, even a more important thing to think about in terms, in terms of robotic technologies, is to think about how the artifact that you're creating will go into the real world. Right? What is it going to look like? If I have to design a pattern on this, on this pottery, what is that pattern going to look like? Because I have to imagine the person who's using it, who's going to buy it, their context, their environment. What is the style that they like? Right? Mm -hmm. If I put this on someone's mantle, is that going to fit into that environment or not? And if I can imagine what the, that person is going to be like, what their lifestyle is like, what their environment is going to look like, I can actually design a pattern that better fits into that environment. So if you think about yourself as a designer and really go to the roots of design, just the history of design, think about these very basic design problem. All of that actually applies to design these very complex robotic technologies too. Think about design elements and tools and processes of a systematic process, build a lot of expertise and using that elements, using that tools to build, create systems, and really think about the context that these systems are gonna go into. And I think as you practice and practice, and design is a very practice-oriented field, practice and practice and practice, you really build that expertise and sense for how to better design robotic technologies. You internalize the principles, you build kind of best practices, that's sort of, I think, the, the building, building blocks of the design mindset. Thank you. And that's it from us for today. But don't worry, there's lots more exciting robotics news, views and podcasts on robohub.org. And if there's anything you'd like to hear more about in one of our upcoming episodes, why not get in touch with your ideas and suggestions? You can email our president, Audro, directly at audro.nash at robohub.org. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Design with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>